All right. Well, if you've got your word, you can open up to 1 Corinthians. We are in chapter 2 as we work our way through this wonderful letter that Paul the Epistle wrote to the church in Corinth. And by extension, because these are the words of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, they are a blessing to us, his church in Antioch in 2020. We're very grateful for the things that he has taught us so far, and we look forward to the things he has in store for us this morning. Let me ask you a question before we begin today. What do Ringo Starr, Derek Fisher, and Michael Collins all have in common? They are, what's that? Drummers? No, you got one out of the three right, Jeff. Thanks. Thanks for trying. They are all the least famous and least understood members of some very famous groups of people. Of course, Ringo Starr, Jeff nailed it, is the drummer for the Beatles. We rarely hear of Ringo's name in the, uh, in the press. In fact, his real name is Richard Starkey. Most people don't know that. Uh, but Ringo was an integral part of all those great songs that we love. Um, but most people don't talk about Ringo. He's not kind of the front man. He's sort of in the shadows. Uh, Derek Fisher was a, a guard who played on several championship Lakers teams uh, around the 2010 time frame. Uh, but we always hear of Shaq in the early teams. You always hear of, of Kobe Bryant. But Derek Fisher was a really, really important part of those teams. He's not in the limelight very often. Right now he's coaching a WNBA team, but you don't hear a whole lot about him in the news. And who's Michael Collins? Michael Collins was one of three Americans who were sent into space for the Apollo 11 mission. We hear about Lance Armstrong. We hear about Buzz. Maybe just because Buzz is such a cool name. We hear that all the time. But Michael Collins is not somebody we hear a whole lot about. These are people who are very famous in their context. But individually, we don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about them. And the Holy Spirit carries a similar mystique. Maybe it's because he gets less time expressed to him in the word that we have before us. Maybe it's because his work is often done behind the scenes in subtle ways. Maybe it's because he doesn't have a physical body or a portfolio of descriptive names like the Father and the Son have. For whatever reason, the Holy Spirit is often thought of almost as like the junior varsity member of the Holy Trinity. What a tragedy it would be if we fail to love the Holy Spirit with the kind of love that comes more easily for the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is critical to our salvation and every bit of worthy of our honor and praise. Now this section in 1 Corinthians that started in verse 6 of chapter 2 gives us some important instruction regarding the most misunderstood member of the Godhead and His activities in our lives. Last week, uh, the Apostle Paul taught us the difference between worldly wisdom and spiritual wisdom, which is a wisdom that we can only get from the Holy Spirit. This week, we're going to see that in order for, for us to know God in a personal way, the Holy Spirit must grant to us a spiritual discernment, an understanding about who God is, what His character is like, and what He wants for His people. Next week, chapter 2, we'll go on to describe a spiritual judgment that Christians are called to participate in. Now that we have been given the mind of Christ and we have a discernment, we have to be judging about what goes on in the world. God is our ultimate judge, but He calls us to come alongside Him as we understand what is good and right in the world and declare it to the people in a prophetic way. And then finally, on October 4th, 
we're going to see that thanks to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, Christians should enjoy a spiritual maturity that protects them from the folly of sin. So let us turn our eyes to the Word. Let us pursue it and pursue a better understanding and appreciation of the spiritual discernment that God offers to us through it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to read for you verses 10 through 13 today. <clears throat> These things, and he starts there referring back <clears throat> to the unique spiritual wisdom that we spoke about last week. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Let's take a moment before we try to break this down verse by verse and let's ask God for His guidance and direction even as we study this morning. Father, we thank You, God. We thank You for the spiritual wisdom that only You can give to us. It is an important and critical supply. We would be lost without Your guidance, Father. We would be in a great and thick darkness if it was not for the illuminating power of Your Word. And we thank You so much that the Holy Spirit is not only instrumental in delivering that word through the prophets and the apostles that it was written down for us and has been preserved over these years that we might study it and trust it, but also through the inner working of the Spirit which gives us eyes that can see and understand these eternal concepts, these concepts which are often so very foreign to the natural thought process of man. Holy Spirit, today I hope to glorify you in the preaching of your word. And I know that I can't do that without your help, and so I pray, Lord, that you would overcome my weakness, that you would push me to the side and that the glory of the Spirit would shine through the preaching that occurs here today. We want to glorify you through the reception of these truths. And so I pray, Lord God, that every question that might keep us from loving you fully, that might make us doubt and not embrace the faith that you have planted in our heart like a seed that is to grow and bear good fruit, that you would, you would take those doubts away, that you would answer those questions, Lord God, that you would give us an assurance in you and that our doctrine would grow in depth and breadth that we might understand you more fully and be able to describe you to our friends and to the lost world as the holy God that you are. Help us to boast in Christ. Please help us to stretch beyond what is easy and already familiar to us, Lord God. Help us to new, know new things and help us to understand things that we've known before to a deeper extent, Lord God. We will glorify you for what your word is going to teach us today. Thank you for all that you provide. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ, our Holy Savior, that we pray. Amen. Verse 10 begins our passage by referencing back to the spiritual wisdom that we learned about last week, a wisdom that comes from God Himself and is exceedingly better than any wisdom that we could find in a man-made textbook or in a classroom. Any wisdom that we could hope to muster according to our own human intellect falls short of what the Lord can provide to us. Here's where Paul indicates that the Holy Spirit plays a crucial role in our acquisition of this superior wisdom. The Holy Spirit, according to what we've read this morning, reveals to believers that which is true. Reveals it. If we cannot see, then we need help. 
We need someone to illuminate what is obscured. And so last week I mentioned the lyrics to the song Amazing Grace, which is so dear to many of us. The first verse of which says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. I once was blind, but now I see. Before we trusted in Christ, we were dead in our sins. We didn't have the capacity to truly understand and appreciate our God. From our own worldly wisdom, God seemed like a threat to our personal freedom. We could not appreciate His love for us. Instead, we ran from Him. Since all of us are born with a sinful nature, we don't naturally seek after God. It is not something that we want from the womb. In order for us to see the great danger of our sin, in order for man to begin to seek God and to begin to look on holy things, God Himself has got to overcome the deceptive blindness that dominates our sinful minds. He must give us new eyes that we might be able to see things that are holy. This is done by the third member of the Trinity. And it is accomplished via an, via an initial act and then also along with an ongoing process. There is an initial act that begins this sight and then there is an ongoing process that enriches us continually by this new sight. So the initial act is called regeneration. It is the quickening of the heart that grants us spiritual life and removes our overwhelming blindness. The Apostle Paul says in many different places in his letters that when we were born, as we entered into this world, we entered in with, with three strikes against us already. Because our, our pregenerative uh, forefather, Adam, sinned in the garden, everyone who came from him carried the same curse of sin that he earned through his disobedience. Every one of us was dead. And so God needed to make us spiritually alive in Him. We were physically alive. We could walk around and draw breath. We could talk to one another. We could see basic material things and understand life to a certain degree. But when it came to spiritual things, we were flatlined until the Holy Spirit gave us new life. Titus 3, 4-5 through 5 describes this. It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The, the Greek construct there makes it clear that the Holy Spirit is applied to both of those things. The washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Spirit of man. And so the Holy Spirit has done something that man could never accomplish. It has come and brought to life what was spiritually dead. So if you are a Christian today, you've already experienced one kind of resurrection. Your spirit, which was far from God, which was completely incapable of knowing Him and loving Him, has been brought to life so that you might see and appreciate the good things of God. With these new eyes, we can finally see the depth and seriousness of our own sin. We can see what an offense that sin is to the God who has made us, created us in His image. We see the wretched ugliness of our sin, that we have every reason to run from our sin and to reject it and to turn from it with a repentant heart. We see how that sin separates us from a God who is holy and without spot or blemish. And we also see with this quickened new heart, this new life that the Spirit provides by washing us clean, we see the utter inability that we have to do anything to conquer our sin. 
We see that we can't overcome it. No matter how hard we try, no matter how many good deeds we stack up on our ledger, there's nothing that can erase the bad things that we have done from God, especially, uh, uh, specifically, not something that we could do that could erase that. And then the Holy Spirit helps us to see one more thing. It helps us to see how the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is the solution that we can't find for ourselves. It's not something that we could have accomplished. There was a very real hopelessness to the state of our being before God intervened. But when Christ came and took on flesh, when Jesus, God in the flesh, fulfilled the law by keeping every good thing written in the Scripture, when He was willing to go to the cross at Calvary and to be scourged and nailed to the tree, what we call the cross, and lifted up into the air, shamefully displayed as a criminal, even though He was absolutely pure and holy, the fact that Jesus was willing to take that punishment upon Himself means that all who trust in Him now can have a new life, a life that gets to start over. And it's not a life that starts over the way that it began. No, we don't just have a clean slate that now gets another try to do it right on our own power. Rather, it is a whole new kind of life, a transformed life that lives the way it was supposed to live from the beginning, utterly dependent upon this God who loves us so much that He would pay a dear price to save us for Himself. Along with this new vision that was initially granted to us at salvation, this regeneration of the heart, we receive ongoing illumination. So the Holy Spirit doesn't just save us and then wave goodbye and say, have a nice journey. But rather the Holy Spirit stays to dwell in the hearts of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And that Spirit is not just along for the ride either. He is there to help us in our growth. He is there to sanctify us continually, helping us to grow in our holiness so that we be, might become more and more like the Christ who saved us every day that we walk in faith to Him. So if you've got your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians, I hope you do, go ahead and flip a little bit to the right to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I'll give you a second there to get to it. We don't have overheads here in the outside world. Um, so in Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is praying for his brothers and sisters at the church in Ephesus, another town where God had made a mission, plant people, and we'd seen the, the seeds of the gospel grow into fruit-bearing trees. He's writing to these people. And he says in chapter 1 of Ephesians, verses 17 through 18, he says that the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. So these, these encouraging words give us insight into the nature and the role of the Holy Spirit, both who He is and what He does. He is the Spirit of wisdom, of revelation, and of knowledge concerning God and godly things. So to receive the Holy Spirit as a gift from God, and, and remember, when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he's writing to people who are already believers. He's writing to people who have been quickened in the heart. They already are alive in Christ. But see, he's saying, I pray that God would give you the Holy Spirit. He's saying that, that God would continually give you this ongoing illumination that only the Holy Spirit can provide. Paul is asking God to give them that gift Every day, transforming wisdom that only God can give to them. 
A believer has been given these eyes to see, along with a helper who can increase our ability to grasp and appreciate the mysterious things of the gospel. Now in 1 Corinthians 2.11, Paul will take a moment to explain why this is necessary. He uses what is sometimes called an argument from the lesser to the greater. He begins with a principle that applies to simple creatures. He says, let's look around at the world that you live in. Here's a principle that you can see applies to you. And then he's going to show how that principle only reinforces this idea that without the Spirit, we cannot know God. Verse 11 tells us that only the spirit of a man knows his own thoughts. This explores the human perspective of trying to know people, right? Now there's a lot of undisclosed thinking going on in this place right now. Most of you are all looking up at me, unless you are uh, watching your little one, trying to keep them from running off into the parking lot or climbing some tree or something like that. By the way, thank you so much for being very kind to those who have little kids here right now. I know this is sometimes difficult for them to keep the kids focused, but it is beautiful and wonderful to have our little kids talking, but also hearing what's being preached. So I'm especially grateful to see the church body being extra gracious and kind to these families. We want them to feel welcome. We want to know that these little, these little ones to know that they are loved and that we're glad that they're here. So thank you for that. But if you're not looking after your kids right now, you're probably looking at me, right? Now that doesn't mean you're necessarily thinking about what I'm saying. See, because there's a lot of stuff going on in those heads out there. All right? There's a lot of things going on inside. I don't know if you're contemplating 1 Corinthians right now or if you're dreaming about lunch. I don't know if you're trying to figure out how to apply the word to your life or if you're dreaming about the Niners and whether they're going to win in the next game they play. I'm not in your head. Your spirit knows your thoughts, right? But I can only take a guess at what your thoughts are. Even when it comes to people that you're extremely close to, you can't know for certain what that person's thinking all the time, can you? I'd have to say that I'm pretty close to my wife. We have a good relationship. And over the years, I have studied her. I have taken mental notes about her tendencies and preferences. And sometimes I'll surprise her by knowing what she's thinking before she even reveals it to me. Guys, have you ever done that for your wife? When you're able to finish a sentence or kind of guess what's on her mind? Here's an example of how that works with me and Missy. If I say anything that contains a fragment or a portion of a song or jingle that Missy's familiar with, I know for a fact that in her mind she automatically starts singing that song if she doesn't start singing it out loud, right? It's a compulsion. It's just a, a characteristic of who she is. Another person's mind is like a whole new world. See, she just started singing Aladdin's whole new world in her mind, right? I'm, I'm not joking. It's a whole new world, right, miss? So I understand my wife well. But listen to this. I don't have the same spirit as my wife. The Bible tells me that through the covenant of marriage, we are one flesh. But it doesn't say that we are one spirit in the same way that my spirit is one with my mind. There are times when I just don't know what is going on inside my wife's head. I don't even understand all of my own thoughts. So how can I pretend the complex and beautiful under, uh, understanding and thoughts of a woman like Missy? I couldn't. So that's pretty straightforward, right? That's, that's the, initial, the initial concept that only the spirit of a man knows what's going on in the mind of a man. 
So he's going to take that lesser principle, that argument of lesser truth, and now he's going to apply it to a greater truth. In a similar manner, man does not understand the thoughts of God apart from God's own Holy Spirit. For the Spirit of God knows the thoughts of God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is God. Turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. This, of course, is Paul's master thesis on salvation. It helps us to understand the weight of sin. It helps us to understand our inability to save ourselves and the means that God has provided for us that we might be redeemed. So in Romans chapter 11, he's getting to the conclusions of these arguments. He's beginning to apply them to the life of a redeemed person. And he says in verse 33 of Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Is God's wisdom and knowledge an easy thing to access? Is it small? No, it is deep. It is a rich wealth of understanding. He says, How unsearchable are His judgments, and how unscrutable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is, no one has. No one can give God counsel. No one can correct Him. No one can predict exactly what He's going to do because He is so much farther above and beyond what we are. It says, Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? Again, a rhetorical question. None of us can put God in our debt. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Friends, the reality of God is too deep. It is too comprehensive for our finite minds to grasp. The word picture here evokes a mine where precious metals are mined. And a place in the side of a mountain where you have to dig deep, where you have to go down into the depths of the earth to get that gold or to get that silver or that precious metal. The things of God are not low-hanging fruit that any intellectual can just go and, and pluck out of the air. God's character is far too lofty. We cannot contain the totality of Him in our thoughts unless He Himself helps us to understand. And so for the same reasons, we will not be able to attain to Him on our own. We cannot approach Him or hope to unravel the mystery of Him starting at our own powers of deduction. Our tools of comprehension are not mighty enough the reach of our potential understanding will fall incredibly short every time unless He reaches out to us. Think about when Peter and the other disciples were asked, Who do you say that I am? First, Jesus says, Who do, I, who do everybody else think that I am? Who do the people in the world that you're interacting with, who do they say that I am? What's the buzz on the street? And there was many different theories about who Jesus was. Some people thought that Jesus was a new prophet. Some people thought that he was the reincarnate Elijah. Some people believed that he was the reincarnate John the Baptist. So there's all these theories and they share that with Jesus. And, and Jesus says, okay, I, I could see what everybody else is thinking. What do you say that I am? Who am I to you, to my disciples? And you remember his response? He said, you're the son of God. Peter confessed in that moment that he believed Jesus to be the Messiah that the Jews had been waiting for for so many centuries. That he was the manifestation of God's redeeming plan. That through him the kingdom would be established and strengthened. And through him, God's people would find forgiveness of sin. Those were the confessions 
that Peter made in that moment. But do you remember how Jesus responded to him? Jesus explained. He didn't say, Peter, great work at figuring that riddle out. He didn't pat him on the back for unraveling the mystery. Instead, he said, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. How did Peter, the apostle, attain to this lofty wisdom of who God was? Not on his own, but only by the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart. We have no true discernment apart from what God provides for us. As we think through the rest of Romans 11, 33-36, we hear that all things are from God. In other words, He is the origin of everything good. Can you understand that? That there is nothing that you've ever been thankful for that God did not grant to you through His grace? He says that all things are through Him. And that means not only is He sustaining the universe by the word of His power, but He is also at the very same time pressing His will forward that what He wants to be done is all unfolding exactly as He imagined it, as He planned it. God's declarative will is unfolding with every second of time that marches forward. Everything happens through Him. And it says that all things are for Him. Not only do they proceed out of Him, not only are they upheld by Him, but they exist for Him. Everything that exists was made as an expression of God's glory. And it will all work to prove the ultimate truth that there is no one like our God. And by all things, He will certainly be exalted. These are realities, friends, that clash with the heart of any man who is not alive in Christ. God's ways are unsearchable. So if we are to know Him, God Himself must reveal these things to us. Godly wisdom must be, what did we say last week? An imparted wisdom a wisdom that is granted to us, not a wisdom that we discover on our own. In chapters 14 through 16 of John, you don't have to turn there, but when Jesus told His disciples that He had to leave them, when He began to reveal the details of the plan of how He was going to save them through the cross, when He revealed that He would die and rise from the dead and then go to a place that they could not yet go to, He comforted them. And how did He comfort them? He comforted them by telling them that they should not despair, for He was going to send a helper to them. A helper in His place. Now, this helper is who? It's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not some second-rate consolation prize. Well, you can't have me because i got to go to heaven, but I'll give you the next best thing. No, the Holy Spirit is one of the most important gifts a believer ever receives. The Holy Spirit is the very presence of God making its home within the heart of a redeemed man or woman. Do you see how life-changing knowledge can never be used as the focal point for your own personal achievement? How can we be a people who boasts about what we know if the only thing worth knowing is something that can't start with our knowledge? It has to be given as a gift to us. That is why we boast only in Christ and not in our ability, not in our deep theology or our detailed doctrines. We boast in Christ Jesus because He is the one who is to be exalted. Everything we know that is good comes from Him. So ask yourself this question today. As you listen to this sermon, do you know God? Is He an utter mystery to Him? Does He baffle you? Are you wanting to reject Him because you've got a broken understanding of God? Or do you know this amazing and powerful 
and wonderful God that we are preaching about today. If you do know Him, then take a moment and thank Him in your heart. Thank Him for giving you the knowledge of Himself. Thank you that He loved you so much He was willing to say, Here I am. You could never see this without fresh eyes. You could never appreciate and understand God without new life. I will give that new life to you and I will give you the Holy Spirit so you can think beyond what you are capable physically. If you've been given the Holy Spirit, you've been given a supernatural bridge to understanding God, not just knowing about Him, but knowing Him in a personal way. Because the Spirit of God that dwells in you knows the very mind of God. The Spirit that dwells in you is not just a reflection of God or a reverberation of God in the world. It is the person of God with you right now if you are a believer. Just as only the Spirit of a person really knows what is going on inside that person, so too does the Spirit alone know what is going on inside of the triune God. And that Spirit who has absolute knowledge of the plan and will of God, that spirit who everything pertaining to life and godliness is at his disposal, that Holy Spirit who has been granted to you as a helper is the one and only means by which you may discern between what is truly godly and what is not. We have not received, according to 1 Corinthians, the spirit of the world. Now we should take a second to understand what that means because in other places, the spirit of the world can actually be used to refer to Satan. But I believe in the context of the passage that we're studying together today that the spirit of the world there is referring to the spirit of wisdom that comes from the world. This worldly wisdom that is being ever contrasted with the godly wisdom that only God can provide here. So we have not been given the spirit of this worldly wisdom. Now we had that spirit at one time. Before we were made alive, that was the whole way we looked at the world. But think about how amazing it is that God has reordered the way you think about the universe as He has sanctified you and drawn you closer to Him through the work of the Spirit that is, is active inside of your heart. Sometimes I look back at notes of things that I wrote when I was a young believer, or even things 10 years ago, and I think, wow, have I grown in my appreciation and understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that in 40 years, if God would still have me on this planet, when I look back at even this sermon that I'm preaching today, I would say there are so many more things I could tell people about Christ because the Spirit has been continually revealing those things to me as I have walked in step with Him. We have not been given the Spirit of this world which is incapable of unraveling the mystery of God. We've been giving this amazing Spirit that will sanctify our spirit and make us more like Christ as we yield the way to Him and trust the directions that He leads us in. The Spirit of God is given to us at regeneration. It is given to us continually in this indwelling illumination that, that the Spirit provides. Now recall the idea that was presented last week. I mentioned it a minute ago that the wisdom of God is by its very nature imparted wisdom, right? The imparting is not man-driven. It is spirit-driven. To understand godly wisdom, we need to be led by the Spirit of God. And that's why we pray for guidance at the beginning of each sermon. You ever wonder that? Didn't we spend enough time praying already? You know, we've got our intro prayer, we've got our offering prayer. Why do we have to pray when we get into the Word? We don't actually have to, because I know we've been praying about these things, hopefully, as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's Day. But we pray to signify that these things that God teaches us 
will only be grasped properly and applied well if the Spirit is at work, working these things out for our good. That's why each elder prays along the way as he prepares a sermon to preach to you. As, as I prepare or Paul prepares or any of the men that preach Bible studies in our, our congregation or leads a small group, we are praying that God would illuminate our eyes and give us strength so we can teach you well, so that we don't get off the path and end up preaching something that just comes from our own hearts and minds instead of from the mind of Christ. And that is why we should pray when we pick up God's Word on our own. When you go into the Word in your personal times of devotion, start that off by a simple prayer, just thanking the Lord God for what He provides for you in that Word, and then asking that He would make these things come alive to you, that the Holy Spirit would help you to be engaged, that you wouldn't be distracted, that you wouldn't try to overlay worldly concepts or philosophies onto what you're reading in the Word, but you would just let the Word speak for itself. 2 Peter 1, 19-21 says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. In other words, until Christ returns for His church, this word is a light to our path and will help us to journey well towards Him. Verse 20, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now what is that talking about there? This is helping us to establish a very, very important hermeneutical principle. Hermeneutics is a fancy word, but it's a word we should know as Christians. Hermeneutics is basically your strategy on how you know what is true according to the word. How do you study the Bible? Do you just flip your Bible open to a random page and then read and just ask that God would give you feelings about that passage? Well, that is one hermeneutic, but it's not a very biblical hermeneutic. Here we are shown that no prophecy of God was made by the interpretation of man but rather that God has provided for us in the Word itself its own interpretive principles. And so as we study Scripture, we will be much more likely to get things right and to stay on the path if we listen to the things that Scripture say about those Scriptures. We apply our reason when we study. We use our intelligence the best we can, but we must do it with meekness, with a heart that is teachable and shapeable by the potter, God Himself. We have a willingness to be taught from one greater than who we are. And that extends beyond our worldly leaders. We need to be led along by the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. So it's not just being willing to be led by your pastor or by your mentor, but let the Holy Spirit guide and shape you as you read and study. This illumination... This insight that the Spirit gives is no way cutting out the Word of God or cutting out the godly people that God has put in your life to instruct you and direct you. It's not saying that now that you have the Holy Spirit, you don't really need the Bible anymore. Just let the Lord talk directly to you. That's not what the Scripture is saying here. It's saying that no prophecy is from the interpretation of man. Rather, this Holy Spirit is here to open your eyes to the fact that you now have godly tools, not worldly tools, but godly tools, to comprehend the scripture that he has given to you. Like verse 13 says in 1 Corinthians 2, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. 
He says, and we in part. What is the we there? He's talking about the apostles. Men like Paul, Apollos, and Peter, these men have imparted this divine knowledge. How did they do that? They did that by preaching the word. And they did that by codifying the word, by writing it down according to the Holy Spirit's lead. This is the best means by which we might interpret Scripture. And that is why the sermons we preach in 1 Corinthians today will not exclusively speak of 1 Corinthians, right? In order to understand the breadth of the things mentioned here in 1 Corinthians, I've taken you to Titus 3, Ephesians 1, Romans 11, 2 Peter 1, and we're going to go to several other scriptures before we're done today. Why? Because the Holy Spirit helps us to interpret Scripture by taking us to other parts of Scripture which speak to the same thing that we're reading about where we're at. That is the most dependable interpretive tool in hermeneutic structure that we have. The things in God's Word will never contradict the other things written in God's Word. They will never undermine the concepts that you read about in God's Word. They will never seek to confuse you as long as you treat them as a unified whole. Now, people can be confused by Scripture if they take a piece of Scripture and they don't see it according to the light that's given to us in the rest of what God has provided. That when we see Scripture as a unified whole, then what is written there speaks to what is written here and can help us to understand in ways that we will have a greater depth and seriousness to our learning. And so, friends, as we think about these concepts, there really is no excuse. And we're going to see this in a couple weeks in particularly. There is no excuse to stay spiritually immature or ignorant to the things of God. Friends, you have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness if you are a believer because the Holy Spirit Himself dwells within your heart. You have the Word. You have the Spirit to help you understand the Word. You have the consistent preaching of the text that God has given to you. How can we remain undiscerning? How can we allow the truth that has been given to us as such a great and mighty gift to remain a mystery to our hearts when it has been so plainly laid out before us by the power of God? Now today I've been a little brief in my comments on wisdom because the sermons that preceded the sermon today and the sermons that will follow it are going to afford us a lot of time to meditate on the topic of godly wisdom. And there was something in particular that these verses in 1 Corinthians touches on that deserved an extended side trail. So that's how we're going to end today. We're going to look at one particular aspect of the text that we are are studying together. I think it would be profitable for us to pause for a moment and zero in on a theological truth that, like the Holy Spirit, doesn't get a lot of attention, but is important for believers to understand. We have spoken a lot, even this morning, about how holy and set apart our God is. The Apostle Paul has gone to great lengths in this letter to show that the knowledge of God is otherworldly, that it is beyond human grasp, except for this divine intervention that God has made whereby we can see it. And One of the most stunning realities of God that is difficult for our human minds to grasp has to do with His very nature. God is triune. He is three in one. Now, in a nutshell, what that means is that God is one being who exists simultaneously in three co-equal, perfectly unified persons. That being the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Each of those three can rightly be called God. Each of those three possesses the full knowledge and power of God. Each of those three has always existed and always will exist in perfect unity with the others. 
Let me read to you what the London Baptist Confession of 1689 says in chapter 2, part 3, concerning this triune nature of God, which is such a rich and deep theology. It says, In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word, or the Son, and the Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity each having the whole divine essence. They are not a fraction of God. They each possess the wholeness of God, yet the essence is undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding, meaning that nobody created the Father and no one sends Him out. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So God sends the Son, God the Father sends the Son to be with us as our Redeemer, and the Father and the Son send the Spirit to be with us as the ongoing illuminating light. All are infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several particular relative properties and personal relations, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon Him. So that's the end of the London Baptist Confession. Very, very good and thorough description of why the Trinity is important for us to understand and how it affects the way that we view and comprehend this God that we worship. The word Trinity does not show up in Scripture. If you were to do a word search, most of your Bible apps these days have a wonderful little search feature where you can punch in a word and it'll bring up all the places where that word pops up in Scripture. You're never going to find the word Trinity because it is a word that we in our, in our limited human minds have created to describe a grand and godly understanding of truth. But the reality of the Trinity, though the word does not show up, the reality of the Trinity shows up throughout the word consistently. If you've ever run into someone who is opposed to the Trinity, there are several uh, factions out there that claim to be Christian but do not hold to the Trinitarian doctrine. They may try to stump you. They might try to say, show me one verse, just one verse, where it says that God is a Trinity and I'll believe. Just one verse and they'll keep going back to that. Now the proper response to that is to point out that in order not to believe the Trinity, you would have to tear out huge portions of Scripture and pretend that it's not even there. Because the evidence of the Trinity, even if the Word is not there, the evidence of the Trinity abounds throughout the testimony of Scripture. The word Trinity is not essential, but the reality of the Trinity is essential because there is no responsible way to understand how God reveals Himself to us. Now we have various Trinitarian proofs in Scripture, verses that show the unity of the Father and the Son. If you were to go back and read uh, chapter 17 of John, especially the last part, there's a, just a beautiful exposition where Jesus is praying for His church. He's interceding on behalf of believers. And He talks about how God the Father and He are so perfectly unified and how He desires that kind of a unity between God and His people. So there are these, these verses like that which shows the absolute unity and oneness of God the Father and God the Son. There are verses that display the three working together to accomplish divine deeds, such as 1 Peter 1, 1-2, where it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ, for sprinkling with His blood. You see the Trinity at work there in God's design for His church? And then he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And grace and peace is multiplied to the church when we embrace the true nature of this mysterious and mighty God. We see evidence of the Trinity in equivocations, where one member of the Trinity is spoken of, and then later another member of the Trinity is substituted as the equivalent in the same train of thought. Who is the Lord? The Lord is Jesus Christ, right? 2 Corinthians 3, 16-18 But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So when we turn to Christ, the veil is removed. And he says in verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You see the equation there? And we all with unveiled face. I want my face unveiled. I don't know about you guys. I'm tired of these veiled faces. But we with all in, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, and he repeats it, who is the Spirit. Most of these verses happen to illuminate the oneness of God the Father and God the Son. But here in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, we have one of the strongest proofs of the Holy Spirit's union with Father and Son. One of the strongest evidences of the Holy Spirit's place in the Trinity. You don't hear this talked about as much, so I wanted to zero in on this today. Do you remember what we read in 1 Corinthians 2.10, the last part of it? It says, For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now, for the sake of clarification, this does not mean that the Holy Spirit is like us, some created being that tries to seek out wisdom. That's not what it's saying when it says he searches the depths of God's knowledge. It's not that the Holy Spirit was a created thing that was just better at knowing than we are. That's not the case. The Holy Spirit is not a created being. He was intimately involved in the creation of all created things. We see evidence of that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters of the deep as the universe is spoken into existence. There is nothing about God that remains hidden from this Holy Spirit. He knows the depths of God because He is Himself the Spirit of God. In order to understand the greatest being in existence, it would take the greatest mind in existence. God cannot create something smarter than Himself. It's impossible because God is perfect. He is prime. And so the fact that the Holy Spirit has access to all the knowledge of the living God cannot be explained in any other way than confessing that the Holy Spirit is God Himself. Nothing is hidden from the Spirit. Doesn't Paul's illustration of lesser to greater offer proof of that? Only the spirit within a man can understand the deepest thoughts of that man. The man's spirit is not something outside of himself, is it? Rather, it is an aspect of who he is. So too the Holy Spirit can only know the deep and unsearchable things of God because they are literally of one mind together. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit exist in a harmonious unity that cannot totally be grasped by the mind of man in its uniqueness and its grandeur. And yet the basic reality of this union has been revealed to us that we might marvel at God and His uniqueness and fill our songs with praises to His great and wonderful name. 
There are other proofs of the Holy Spirit's role in the Trinity. Ephesians 3.17 Jesus dwells in your heart when you know that it is the Holy Spirit that actually resides in you and that Jesus is properly right now seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. Baptism occurs in the name of what? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He is intimately connected to the regeneration of believers. There are a number of confessional formulas from the early church years before the term Trinity was likely coined that intentionally proclaims the threefold faith in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.14 is an example. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. But let us rejoice this morning that here in the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, we are given such a mighty and irrefutable evidence that the Holy Spirit is not some abstract force. He is not some exalted created being. He is not just a fraction of what God is. He is not just a tool of God or some servant of God. He is God, one in substance and in purpose with the Father and the Son. And that third person of God, by an amazing act of grace, has taken up residence in our purified hearts that have been washed clean by the blood of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead by the Father on the third day, according to the Scriptures, that we too might know God and have eternal fellowship with Him, joining the fellowship that Father, Son, and Spirit have enjoyed among themselves for an eternity. Let's bow with hearts filled with gratitude and appreciation for this amazing gift that He has given. Thank you, gracious God, for giving us what we could not attain to ourselves. And that goes beyond redemption because we are aware, Lord God, that no matter how good we tried to be, we could never climb out of the pit of rebellion to you. We would always have the scars and, and the marks of rebellion on our heart if it were not for you redeeming us. But we can go farther than that and even see, thank you, Lord God, that you would be willing to give us not just salvation, not just a redemption that washes our sin away, but a new identity in Christ, whereby we have been redeemed to be near to you, that we might be called sons and daughters of the living King, that we might rejoice in our fellowship with the Father and with the Son through the Spirit. And so, God, as we pray, we are humbled. We know that we don't totally understand who you are or how you exist because you are so set apart from us, but we know also that the Holy Spirit has helped us to even be able to appreciate the greatness and the otherness of you, Lord God. Thank you for the Spirit which reveals, the Spirit which has ever been connected to Father and Son and has enjoyed perfect fellowship from since the beginning of time and before it. And so, Lord God, we thank you for inviting us into that fellowship that we might come close to you and know you by your grace and love. Help us, Lord God, to desire this relationship for others as we go out into the world and as we pray for the mission work of the gospel that is spreading throughout the world even now, Lord God. Though the world grows darker, may the the brightness of your glory grow even all the more light in contrast. We praise you, God, for what you have given and for all the more you have to give to us through the abiding spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.